0: Well, hello, Uh, thank you very much for coming uh, to this uh, session in the UCL Festival of the Arts, uh, which we call Pleasure, Pain and the Capacity to Relate. I'm Timothy Matthews, I'm a Professor of French and Comparative Criticism here at UCL, uh, and it's my very great pleasure to introduce to you, if you don't know already, Juliet Mitchell, Uh, a well-known writer of books of literary criticism as well as psychoanalysis um, and uh, for the way she's revolutionized, if I may say so, uh, thinking about uh, psychoanalysis from the point of view of sexual difference, hysteria and siblings. Um, We wanted to do this kind of event uh, partly to showcase, well in general obviously, to showcase what we do in the arts and humanities here at UCL and in particular to try and do something practical uh, with regard to interdisciplinary work that we try and foster generally in the arts and humanities and as a way of conceiving of what the arts and humanities is all about, uh, both in teaching and in research. Uh, Interdisciplinary work is reasonably messy on the other hand, I think you and I have felt uh, we're taking some pleasurable but nonetheless a reasonable amount of risks uh, in Presenting ourselves to you uh, in this way today. Um, the, the basic idea uh, was to try and say something about the long standing relationship between psychoanalysis and the arts. Um, uh, it's very clear uh, that psychoanalysis uses art and myth to explain its understanding of the human condition. The Oedipus complex is, is clearly something, clearly, a very strong example of that. Uh, where Freud uh, uses the Oedipus myth and the Oedipus tragedies uh, as a way of explaining his understanding of s- human and social relations. Art, on the other hand, is, and, and the study of art, is about reaching out beyond itself and reaching out to others. I, one of the things we'll be exploring, I think, is the way that looking at artworks or reading them involves a kind of unique experience, it's unique to each one of us, but at the same time engaging with it However individual that is, is also generic. So there's a a kind of odd relation involved in engaging with works of art for what they are. Uh, Since we're, uh, each of us engaging uniquely uh, with a person's work, but not with a person. That person is not there. Similarly, a person who's making an artwork is engaging or seeking to engage with people who are not there. So, that, I think, says something about the way relating to art is both extremely personal, subjective, individual, but also generic. That generic quality of relating to people who aren't there, but nonetheless asserting the capacity to relate to people who aren't there. Psychoanalysis, I think, is a practice, is a practice of relation. So when we talk about the capacity to relate, psychoanalysis is a practice of relation. It involves a unique relation between an analyst and a client, trying to reach out to people who also aren't there these are people in the client's past who are often the source of anxiety often the source of pain so psychoanalysis I, I think it'd be fair to say is a is a is a theory of pain and a practice of relation pleasure is the other title the other word in our title we'll have to come back to that <laughs> Uh, what, what we find pleasurable is, is well, well I hope, emerge, but it has to do uh, with, with the capacity to turn self-love into love of others. And what we're going to do is, uh, I hope uh, we'll be happy with carrying on from there a little bit in relation to, you know, your understanding of psychoanalysis, um, and then I'm going to chip in with some questions as we go along, or as you go along, I suppose. And then we'll reverse the procedure. Um, and then we'll have something to say at the end, I, I think, about the, about how we approach these battles. And there'll also be time for questions. So that's our general plan.
1: I thought I'd just start off by saying some very um, fundamental things about what is psychoanalysis and why there is a connection between psychoanalysis and the arts, which is a two-way connection, not uh, not dominated I think by either side, it's by shared material that, that we're related. And the shared material is quite simply in itself the subject of psychoanalysis uh, psychoanalytic research and psychoanalytic practice. And that is that as human beings, we live very largely through unconscious processes. It doesn't mean that we don't have conscious processes, things that we deliberately decide to do. It doesn't mean we don't have things that we call pre-conscious, not subconscious, that's a different sort of concept, which we don't, the psychologists use, but pre-conscious, which means we don't have to think about them every time we do them. I mean, you know how to tie your shoelaces up without thinking about it, so to speak. The so things are pre-conscious, things are conscious, deliberate. But An awfully large part of life is also unconscious. Dreams are the most obvious. Way uh, so dreams are a form of thinking, which is utterly different from our conscious form of thinking. But we all dream, whether we remember them or not. We do dream, and that's a way of thinking. And psychoanalysis um, seeks to understand what is that way of thinking, and if it, in understanding what that way of thinking is in dreams. It also touches on um, what are known as the sort of pathologies of. Hysteria, obsessionality, uh, schizophrenia, psychosis, whatever else. It doesn't really bother an awful lot with diagnosis. It just deals with a general level of of misery. Um, And how could that be turned into just ordinary unhappiness? Uh, And that's what it does clinically through looking at or engaging with a relationship, as Tim said, between two people, which we would call here the patient and the analyst, and trying to, to, in the interaction between the two people, discover what it is that's making things not work for the, for the person and other ways in which one could find that, that they might work better, never ideally, but fairly so that one could function in some way. By functioning, one would mean having some capacity to, to relate and having some capacity to work probably would be the, the most primary ways of looking at that. So psychonosis goes back really, um, to Freud's discovery that there is a way of understanding how unconscious processes work and how they work differently from conscious processes, and that is um, through what he calls primary processes which are function in a different way, a different sort of language um, than, than conscious ones. Now within that, um, because we're going to talk about pain and pleasure and relating, I think it's also important to mention why It is that psychoanalysis, in this context, has two things that are very important. Childhood is very important, and art is very important, and art in the broadest sense of the term. That's, in a sense, the easiest one to just tick off for the moment, because it's what we're going to be talking about throughout this hour. Um, Art also deals with unconscious processes. The artist can be conscious in choosing a canvas, a piece of clay, whatever else it might be, Uh, all sorts of conscious processes but there are all sorts of ones that are unconscious that come into the production and making of of art. So there's an obvious relationship, and indeed Freud and subsequent analysts have always thought in a sense that artists get there first. They do something different. They don't analyze how it is that unconscious processes work, but nevertheless they present unconscious processes for us to, to see and use. Tim mentioned the Oedipus Complex as the most obvious example. It's there in Sophocles. I'm currently working with Shakespeare, Shakespeare's part of Freud's bloodstream. He actually writes sentences which are really Shakespeare (coughs) transposed into psychoanalysis. It comes up from his unconscious into his writing. So art is just there and there to be used by analysts. It's also there to to produce the sort of theory of psychoanalysis because it also, though consciously artists are there to describe what they're doing in terms of unconscious processes as an artist like Giacometti so clearly exemplifies, they are actually very concerned with the ways in which their um, unconscious processes are at work. Now, I just want to say something, because it may not come up at all, but if we miss it out, we're missing something out. And Why childhood? Why why do people tend to think that psychoanalysts and their patients are always sort of going back, reminiscencing, having memories about childhood? In a sense, Mm It's in order to know that the past is past, that we have to go to the past, because our past lives very actively in our present, and therefore both will live in our future. And at certain points, our present may be being quite stuck. And if you can trace it back to where the original sticking point started, it'll be in childhood. That doesn't mean that your pain that we're going to talk about isn't happening yesterday or today. Or tomorrow but it refers somewhere to something that repeats itself which is a pain from childhood now why why childhood well in a sense it's very obvious and easy if you think about um, how we act and live as relating human social beings we couldn't systematically and consciously have a rule book which told us what to do we have to acquire this becoming social in an incredibly telescoped period of time and we do that uh, effectively because we're much more helpless than other animals and um, the nearest ones to us we're just way more helpless we therefore are far more dependent on being looked after in different ways in different cultures and different societies but nevertheless somebody has to look after us A small neonate baby for much longer than you have to look after a kitten for example you just have to look after it we're very short on instincts um, in the sense of animal instincts that know how to climb up the mother cat's fur and get the nipple the human baby has to be put and attached and often won't attach to the nipple or the bottle or whatever it might be we're very low on animal instincts instead we have what we call drives which are our sort of equivalent of instincts, but then but they don't know what to do as their instincts do. They don't know how to get what they want. So how do they get what they want? And they might get what they want in ways that are not going to be allowable within society. And that's what socialisation is at this very early level. You know, how do we become social human beings that we relate in acceptable ways? And what things like the Oedipus Complex is essentially saying is, OK, you can't have a relationship with your mother that's... It, is yours alone, an incestuous relationship like Oedipus did, and you can't murder your father like Oedipus did too. There are rules out there which you can't, every time you think you might want to murder your father, you don't look up in a rule book and say, oh, wait a minute, it says I can't. You actually know you can't, and then if you do, you know you've done something that you shouldn't have done, or you should know, and if you don't, then you need some help with knowing, uh, knowing that what you've done and don't know, and probably I should stop there because. You're well, I was going to say that, that,
0: that that's a so um, it makes me think that it's a, it's a very different thing from from Enlightenment philosophy, isn't it? From di- very different from a Kantian notion of, of, of the category imperative by which we do we do instinctively know how to put ourselves aside <coughs> in favour of the common good. Um, this, this is a, a very, a very different theory, isn't it? Where, where we we need to learn that individually and and, and through a, a, a extremely complex process of society, you know, socialisation and organising effective it effectively.
1: Yeah. and again, when we say individually, I think we all need to in our different ways. So every person is working with a different patient, with a different history, but it's what we have in common that we have to find out. That's what the point that we have to get to through all the multiple ways in which we differently want to do the things we shouldn't do. um, We actually have arrived at a point where something is too strong Mm. for us to deal with and we'll have arrived there for different reasons, but the conglomeration of all those reasons, all those individual reasons, produces, like you were starting to talk about, a generic reason as well.
0: yeah. I mean, what I want to say also, just listening to you talk there, is um, I'm reminded because I, I know you're very interested in, in Louise Bourgeois at the moment, which is why we've got her, her famous uh, piece there called Maman, Mother. Um, but uh, she says at a point, you know, she's a researcher, she's, you know, as, as, uh, as her, she would describe her activity of an artist as being a researcher, uh, constantly looking for the missing piece. Um, so, th- there's something there, I think, that, that's, that speaks to the way artists might work as a, or there might be some, some way of a, a dialogue between, between the work of the psychoanalyst and the work of the artist, searching for that, that missing piece, missing piece of an identity, which is always beyond the, the reach of, of, of a person. So, the, I want to say that. And the other thing, because it follows on from what you were saying about childhood, um, uh, w- which to me, um, I mean, one of the things that comes from that. Uh, is that uh, in psychoanalysis? There's the, the, it, it addresses the idea that we actually forget. You know, we, we don't. We, we, we don't. We don't know what we're thinking. We, we don't. I mean, we know. I know. I'm trying to get to the end of this sentence, and I know I've got a subject uh, that I'm trying to communicate to you and everybody. Uh, but but I, I don't know where I've come from. In, in you know, in relation to my own childhood, shall we say? So it, so it, the whole. Um, there's a very mobile split in in, in people's identities in that way.
1: Very, very much, I completely agree with that. Yes, Yes. I mean, where to start with thinking about that? Um, We have a concept called uh, um, infantile amnesia Mm. and basically we forget everything before the age of three, roughly. We start to have memories. Some people go back, I had a patient who we're pretty sure was remembering something from her 11th month but it's very, very unusual that you really remember that period that I was talking about in which we become socialized in this way that is fundamentally in the end unconscious because what we do is we repress the things that we shouldn't Mm. do and in doing so we make our unconscious bigger and bigger by these acts of repression Mm. and those acts of repression are acts of forgetting. We don't Absolutely. know that we, you know, who knows that they want to sleep with their mother for goodness mm. sake, nobody. I mm. mean apparently yeah. some people do in some cultures but <laughs> yeah. on the whole they don't. Yeah. You know? yeah. So th- there's a, there's a non-knowledge of where we come from built into the fact that that area of uh, coming into being is incredibly important yeah. and we don't know about it.
0: The, the other thing that uh, strikes me uh, um, in what you say then, and in what we were talking about earlier when we were thinking about this this gathering, um, is that sometimes it, it can it can sound like that the whole the theory uh, can sound uh, determinist, shall we say, it can can sound like uh, you know Jupiter with bolts of thunder telling us how to behave and uh, what what society is about, which of course there is a certain uh, uh, existential reality to, to the way we, we are, to what society is organized. But, the, but there's the other point, which is that, um, as, as you point out in, with regard to Freud, uh, as, as opposed to, or Freudian and Lacanian analysis, as opposed to, I suppose, object relations analysis, um, that what, what psychoanalysis is thinking about is that actually we can, we can focus our unfulfilled desires on, on anything. You know, there's a a tremendous amount of mobility there, you know, from fetishism to full-blown social integration. I mean, there's anything, really. It's it's a very mobile as well as volatile situation, isn't it?
1: Uh, uh, Totally so, because... It's not that these desires go go away, so to speak. Mm. They get rechanneled or redirected, mm. and that'll be individually very various, mm. and it'll come up against all sorts of minor rules and, and things in different cultures, mm. etc., or not mm. um, uh, by by all means. But it, it's a huge flexibility because there's a the flexibility of human creativity, um, which. I think we bring with us in a mm. sense, there mm. is a sort of potential creativity in the, in the in the human being by the context into which we're we're born, something mm. enables us to see that um, that world outside us mm. in, a, in a way that we can actually feel we've discovered it and created it in some ways mm. and mm. to use that potential to to make art mm. in, in fact and you referred to, to Louise Bourgeois, she very much does does that sort of thing. I mean, ma- the spider is Maman, it's her relationship to her mother. Now, all you could say in a very simple sense is she was extremely ambivalent about this mother that she mm-hmm. adored, absolutely adored, but nevertheless saw as a spider with all mm-hmm. sorts of positive associations, all sorts of negative associations. Mm-hmm. The great shock to, to to Bourgeois was when she realised that her mother must have been ambivalent to her as well, and she hadn't really realised mm-hmm. that, and she saw this ambivalence from her mother is a terribly painful experience. Mm-hmm. She thought she'd been the adored daughter, and in a way she was, but her mother mm-hmm. was also fed up with her in some ways as people are. Mm-hmm. So there's all those emotions that can go all over the place, in a, in a sense, mm-hmm. and we'll all deal with them differently.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, a wonderful phrase in, in, uh, in one of your books, I think it's that one, Man, Men and uh, where you, you say that uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of very clear and self-evident but, but powerful way for me, no, no, no one is born on a deserted island, um, but still as a human subject, can a human subject ever call themselves a human subject? Are we ever a human subject in our own right? Um, and it struck me that uh, in, in, a way we, in a way we're born in a desert island because we've, we've manufactured it by f- effects of, of, of forgetting. And then at the same time, uh, we're not a desert island because we're being structured by our relations with people.
1: I think we may feel we're on a desert island at times, and this is what will take us to Giacometti, I think. Mm. I think. We'll very much feel we're on a desert island at times, but we aren't. I would say mm. categorically, I mean, yes, of course, we could become Robinson Crusoe and get actually landed on a desert island. But solitary confinement is mm. an incredible punishment, and unbelievable punishment. Um, it's really terrible for people to be made to be solitary yeah. because we're born, I think, you know, you, you are very much working with the concept of subjectivity. I work more with the concept of intersubjectivity. subjectivity works a lot with what we call intra-subjectivity, that's in which I take you into me and have you as a representation inside me so that I've got a knowledge of who you are so when I see you I can recognise you and, and things. But I think there's something called intersubjectivity, which is actually that we always are born related, are born so that in a developmental way we relate through other people. We are always, some of us is in the other person.
0: I wonder just, uh, you know, the final segment perhaps of this bit of it, um, if you'd like to tell us how... um, um, that developmental side of the theory and the the one that focuses on, on the creativity of, of people. Um, how you've been able to address that in thinking about in, in your recent developments, you know, well, I say recent, those are about 10 years, I suppose, uh, to do with hysteria and to do with siblings, to <laughs> yeah. connected thoughts, I, I think, and, and, how, and how that's, also being relations, and how that's uh, really rather... You know, changed uh, our understanding of the Oedipus complex, for example.
1: Well, I think I was struck in your book about you're not mentioning object relations very much, mm. um, except for Winnicott at one point, and I think I got hooked on your, uh, referring to Winnicott because it's in relation to a teasmaid, maid, which was a thing that made tea in the 1950s, and I just loved tea's made, so maids. <laughs> so absolutely. But, oh, let's let's talk about Winnicott. And I was thinking about it. In thinking of talking to you now, Mm. well actually the people you're using mostly are people who follow the trajectory of of Freud and Lacan in which we are looking backwards Mm. from the present to the past in order to become Mm. the future as it were, but that's the way it goes, whereas quite a lot, not Klein, but quite a lot of object relations psychoanalysts like Winnicott are in a sense looking forward Mm. from childhood into the future. And that's where your question about determinism comes in, because if you can say, well, you know, if you, if you abuse a child, then the child is going to grow up like this, mm-hmm. you're being in a sense deterministic. Whereas in the classical psychoanalysis, you'd have to take the adult that you've got there. I don't know if you know a book called Stuart, A Life Backwards, a homeless person in Cambridge. I used to use it for... Teaching in the big um, psychological hospital, there, part of Adam Brooks. because it's a this this homeless man actually said to the person who wanted to interview him and find out about his life as a homeless person, well, why don't you try and find out how I got here? Mm-hmm. And they went backwards in in his life, and that's the normal tragedy. But once you start looking and saying, we mustn't do this to, to, to children, else they'll grow up like that. You're looking forwards, and. It, in a way, you can't really say, some children, I mean, I'm always nervous of saying this because I'm saying it's all right, because it's not all right at all, it's absolutely, the last thing it is, it's all right to abuse children, but you can't really say how that abuse will grow up, in a sense, it'll grow up differently to different people. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, you still need to look back from the person you've got as an adult or as a later ch- older child to reconstruct that. There's always a construction going on, but nevertheless, the tendency within object relations of non-clinian sort is to look forward. Attachment theory, etc., looks forward. And I think there is something that I would want to use within that, uh, um, because well, it's, it's like Winnicott said, you know, that the catastrophe that that's you're always fearing is a catastrophe that's already happened. So he didn't know it happened in the past, um, and you're always frightened of it. But actually, it's already happened, and you weren't old enough to process what happened. You weren't old enough to process the psychic pain that, that happened there. So you're always frightened of it in the future, because you can't process it in the past. Because you can't process something in the past, you've got to bring it into the present to process it, and that's what a clinical session would be, bringing it into the present. Um, I've probably gone off that slightly, but I think that it l- is a great place for looking at everybody, everybody's human creativity. Looking forward, what does a child do with that? And you asked me about my interest in hysteria and siblings. Hysteria and siblings are very forward-directed sort of bodies of people, in a sense. Um, hysteria is very close to sort of art- artists. I mean. Bourgeois knew very well her own hysteria. She, I, she was very great interest to me because I'd been puzzled about hysteria for an unconscionable number of, of years. And I was interested in male hysteria. And if everything is generic, if we're all the same, then you can't have hysteria belonging to women and not mm-hmm. to men. Mm-hmm. So, But what happens every time you discover hysteria in men Somehow it goes out of the window and becomes traumatic neurosis, you know, something that's happened to them on the battlefield or something like that. What happens to it? And that's what interested me. And I found it interested her too. <laughs> so I she, think, she uh, portrays people who are very androgynous because they're both men and women hysterics.
0: Yeah. I mean, is it, is it the, the case that uh, in, in dealing with with, uh, with siblings, uh, perhaps in particular, but, but via, I suppose, via um, hysterics, um, that... Uh, you know the the, the the stage for human creativity is, is, is enlarged. You know, in, in, in a you use the word lateral a lot, don't you? These these are lateral relations yeah. rather than vertical ones. You know, towards to the, to, to the Oedipus yeah. complex or the Oedipus father figure or whatever. You know that that, that, that the, the 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 future based on a rereading of the past that, that you talk about is is actually played out at a lateral level rather than in this you know well, not dead rather weight than of as well
1: as yeah. as as well as rather mm. than and mm. and. Always in our social sciences, we sort of always make the vertical the paradigm <coughs> and the uh, horizontal is read off it. Mm-hmm. So siblings uh, follow, uh, you know, sons follow fathers, daughters follow mm-hmm. mothers. What about the relationship between them? Mm-hmm. Uh, not from the derivatives in mm-hmm. parents. What about mm-hmm. between them? And, and that's really. I, I got there through hysteria and um, I'd been a unconscionably many years trying to th- work out why people are making all this song and dance about something. And I just sort of decided, well, hysterics really lost the trauma that they really must have had, but they're placing it on God knows what that's nothing to do with it. but. You know, a mouse runs across the floor or something, and they go into a hysterical fit or whatever. But Mm. wait a minute, what is it that really that matters so much about? And I thought that, well, I thought, I mean, from all my clinical work and and reading, that actually we'd missed out on the importance of when another baby comes along or is expected to come along, and this person who's been the baby suddenly isn't who they are anymore. They aren't the baby; somebody else is the baby, or if the baby doesn't arrive, mm. what have they done to stop there being a baby? Because we know that, in a sense, generically, there should be a baby afterwards, because there's a baby before, there's a baby down the road, etc. Mm. So it isn't just if you actually have one, it's also if you expect one, you have to account for it. And when you have one, that person takes out who you were. So you're suddenly told to be big girl, big boy, etc. But wait a minute, I'm baby, and we know that, behaviorally, children regress of sort of... Mm. You know, they stop walking, they stop talking, they stop doing everything. Wait a minute, that's what hysterics do when they're grown up. They stop walking, they stop talking. And um, why isn't it there? And that's before the Oedipus complex. And effectively, what the, I call it the law of the mother, because what the mother is saying is, OK, uh, I've got another baby now. I'm going to look after the baby. You're big girl, big boy. Off you go and play together or play at school. You can have enemies and friends and, and all the rest, but you must have a social group up there. So she's saying, effectively, go out and relate to other people. Give up the family. Start the social life without the family. This is I'm looking after the baby, which is the family. Of course, the child still stays in the family, but there's another bit of it which is sent out in our cultures to school in other simpler societies into, into to, to work indeed of um, and things but whatever it is so it's a different paradigm on a horizontal plane not one that's dependent or it's dependent on repudiating that one for a time the vertical well, that's that's where that comes and look I mean just look at your, your people yeah I was going to say it's a, that's a very horizontal
0: group it's a horizontal group of, of, uh, of different sizes uh, different heights Uh, That's either because they are of different sizes and heights or because each one of them is being looked at from a different point of view and perspective, which will make them smaller or larger. Um, So it's either uh, a number of people combining or it's a number of people seeking to combine from a range of possible different perspectives. um, and I was, I was, I must say, I was so interested, uh, thank you for, for reminding me about the Teesmaid. <laughs> uh, uh, the Teesmaid is, 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 is not an object, I, I, I know, oh. <laughs> but, it's, it's, but it's an object, I discovered, I discovered it, I discovered it uh, through, through reading uh, one of Sebald's stories, W.G. Sebald, uh, called The Emigrants, uh, I mean story in the story in, in The Emigrant called, uh, after the artist in the story, who's called Max Verbe. Um, and uh, it's that um, it's uh, it allowed me to embark on on, on a whole uh, investigation of, of of the relation of past to future, to to, to put it uh, simply. Um, um, the uh, that tea's made is a transitional object um, in a way, uh, because it allows the narrator, who's in a clearly a depressed state at that time and about to meet another depressed person who is the, who is the artist, Max Felber. Um, but the, the, the made uh, allows him to think about uh, a trauma as something that is not just unique. Um, um, uh, it would allows him to think about uh, depression as something that can be built up into a trauma that is unique and on that basis shared uh, with others. And so it's a, it's a complex uh, movement, really, uh, backwards and forwards and side to side, uh, all, all in this uh, very grainy photograph of, of the teasmate included in, in Sebald's uh, story, uh, which, incidentally, he gives no accreditation to. So nobody, if, you're, if you're just reading the story, you're not going to be able to know where the teasmate comes from uh, in, in any way at all.
1: Can you hear um, him?
0: So... Um, he
1: Shall I, shall I over my... Do you want to have this?
0: Um, so, backwards and forwards movement. Um, and, uh, but what I also wanted to, to say, um, uh, I wanted to get a, a little bit personal about these things, and in, in, in indeed in your writing, you're, you're, I think you're incredibly powerful in talking about the personal experiences of, of, of the people that you then talk about in theoretical terms, be they patients or be they artists. Um, and and this, this book here, then, uh, the, the Art of Relation, which is you know, one of the things we're trying to talk about today, um, uh, grew upon me because I was overwhelmed. I became overwhelmed uh, by by Giacometti's sculptures of human figures. Um, but I became overwhelmed in, in, in a rather... Freudian way, as it were, uh, in, terms of, in terms of chance activities. Um, I mean, I was reading, in fact, this story by Zebalt when I, I realised that there was an artist in it, and the artist in it had a studio which looked very much like what I know Giacometti's studio looked like. Um, and um, the, the combination of uh, anxiety, of, of, of depression, of trauma and creativity came, came upon me. Uh, in ways that uh, I, um, I've been able to understand only because I wasn't planning to understand that. I was planning a different thing altogether, in fact. Um, what I then uh, occurred to me is that the, the, the creativity that you mentioned that uh, that is possible in, in, in painful human relations um, in, in, in these cases uh, comes from a certain way of slowing things down, and... Um, of, of uh, thinking much more slowly, writing—I uh, don't mean actually writing more slowly, but offering a slow-paced writing—and um, also, w- which would by analogy uh, r- remind people of what it's like to walk around a sculpture from different points of view, um, to 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 create a, a different point of view in your own acts of looking. Um, one of the things uh, you, you pointed out to me earlier was that, uh, and, and just now in fact, that uh, you know, you're dealing a lot with representations. <coughs> and uh, Freudian psychoanalysis is based on that, isn't it? We are representations of, of ourselves. We give representations of ourselves to each other. We're not in a position to establish what our self is and project that into the future. We, could, we are dealing in representations all the time. Which is, which is clearly why Freud himself turns to them so often, uh, be they you know, Sophocles or um, his own uh, you know, mythological fantasies, such as Intertium and Taboo, but he, he's constructing narratives in a, because he's dealing in, in, in representations. Um, and there's a difference between representation and perception, between, between that and the way we actually look around us and what we actually see. And, and looking back on it it, 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 it occurred to me that what I was trying to do Uh, is to bring those into a different relationship with each other. Uh, Because when Giacometti's got one arm there in 1947, just after the war, um, arm on on a stick, um, it's almost as though the stick is is representing one point of view, one line of of vision. Um, And that line of vision in 1947 is going to be Traumatic. Going to be to do with, with death, it's going to be to do with the camps, it's going to be to do with uh, you know, unimaginable violence, it's going to, it's going to be that. Um, but it's also, with time and with moving around it, it's also awake, it's also embracing, it's also it's saying hello as well as goodbye. Uh, it's, a, it's a statement of relation forward as well as trauma in relation to the past. Um, so I, I just thought that uh, in, in vision, um, uh, lines of perspective uh, are the drama, of the scene, the theatre uh, of the repression you were talking about before. Um, uh, Giacometti's is often saying, fond of saying the very obvious about seeing, and he, and he relates it to, oh, that's why I can't do anything." It's a bit really, old. there are a few problems with seeing. Dear listener, I really think you need to know, and that's it. For example, when I'm looking at you in the face, I can't see the back of you. That is just that is just the way it is. I cannot see past what I'm seeing. So if I were to turn around, you run right, turn around and turn to the back of your head, then I wouldn't see the front of it. This this is this is how perspective works. Uh, so instead of being an enlightenment uh, way of proceeding, which allows you to organise the world, what it is 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 is, is the, the the raw material of, of forgetting, of not seeing. And so, from there, from, from that idea of not seeing, he starts to build up communities. And this 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 is the point, you know, from trauma, from not seeing, he builds up communities. And in those figures, there, um, nobody's looking at each other; they're not, um, but they might be, they might be on the but they might be on the verge of it. They might be about to turn. Um, there's also, they're also divided between men and women. Uh, and the, and the man at the back may or may not be looking at the women, he may be looking past them, he may be just seeing the way he sees, or he may be, his vision may be being altered. Um, so it's that indeterminacy of, of the transitional object, if you like, that I'm trying to find with Giacometti, because he asked me to, um, through the acts, through acts of seeing.
1: Can I ask, can you hear me now if I don't take it back, because take try to it back, take, it take it back? back. Yeah. And could it press forward as well? Sorry. I, uh, yes, of course. I'm so sorry. It, it, it's talking to each other if you see it, I mean. Okay. Um, what were they going to say? Yes, I'm in, interested in, in your concept that trauma, in a sense, can share, be shared and can turn into a community, therefore. Um, my own definition or psychological definition of trauma would be that what happens when a trauma, as opposed to something that's difficult it's not a difficulty, it's something completely different from a difficulty. A trauma is like a physical trauma. It breaks through, a physical trauma breaks through the skin. A psychological trauma breaks through a psychic skin, a sort of defenses against something, something's impossible that we can't bear to see happening, something that we just can't bear and it breaks through and we get filled with a sort of completely inchoate sort of energy which then has to regroup itself and will regroup itself only when it can in a sense produce a representation. <coughs> now what you're bringing into this is that in that regrouping of whatever floods into us that's just too much, it could be, it could be a, a physical thing as well as a, a psychological thing, it could be the tsunami that's coming, it's just too much. One, can't, one, one panics, one can't do anything, one's completely overwhelmed by it. and and it will be joined with lots of other traumas because they repeat themselves trauma so because they've not been processed come back again and again and again and again so one happening now will bring back earlier ones and, and they will get modelled up and become one, one great trauma but you're saying that if we can treat that collectively in a sense or be part of the, the world of relating over that trauma then in a way we can turn, help to turn that trauma into a representation. So there's always, in a sense, a core of trauma within art, because if you take that issue the other way around, if trauma can produce something collectively into art, then if you've got art, you must find something traumatic within it somewhere. And that's certainly that would work for for Bourgeois, who I've worked on, or the um, Japanese artist, who I've also worked on, Yayo Kusama, who, wanted to tell the world what her vision was because she was always hallucinating so she wanted to show the world what a hallucinating person's world looked like so she paints hallucination Um, and she brings other, we all hallucinate to a certain degree because as babies we hallucinate what we haven't got, we imagine it hallucinatorily before we imagine it consciously as an imaginatory, imaginationly uh, imaginary project, so she touches the po- the potential of hallucination in all of us, and paints hallucination.
0: And it's not about uh, in, in cases like that. It's not about um, um, it's, it's 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 you know it, it isn't about a, a particular sharing a particular hallucination. It's a mode.
1: It's the mode. It's where you talk about the difference between form and content. It's the mode, isn't it? It's the mode of hallucination. It's not that we've all got the same little bit of that we're hallucinating. We're not all, as people think, psychanalysts so, are saying, oh, we're always hallucinating the breast. That's just a way of talking. If you said, I mm. mean, we're not all hallucinating the breast. We're all hallucinating something, which stands for pleasure, which we haven't got onto at all, yeah. um, which is, which was yeah. pleasurable. And we will hallucinate something like that. I mean, I suppose it's
0: the pleasure comes it. with the pain uh, because we're having to give something up. Um, but but at the same oh. time, there's there's an enormous mobility there, isn't
1: there? Uh, we call it the uh, we people shorthand call it the pleasure principle, but it's actually correctly the unpleasure pleasure principle. It's none of us want unpleasure, so we do everything we can not to have unpleasure. And we, you know, we pursue uh, pursuit of getting away from unpleasure, on the 18th century concept of pursuing pleasure. It's pursuing un pursuing yep. the, the fight against unpleasure, and that in itself will have aspects which are pleasurable. So it, there's always, I think there's always both. It's a it's, it's a both and way of thinking. There's always both pain and joy. Mm-hmm. You might not access one of them at the same time. And you may oscillate in an uneven way. But but it, love and hate, you never only love, you've also got hate. You never only hate, you've also got some love. And it's getting at that other quality, in a sense, that that's part of the task.
0: Mm.
1: Should we have questions?
0: Uh, yes, we are coming up to question time, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, we used to find... Uh Dr. Ernest Jones's classic essay on Hamlet, interesting, but I ended up deciding that it was just like asking how many children Lady Macbeth has got. Dr. Ernest Jones uh, saw Hamlet as being in a classic eatable crisis where the emotion that he displays is in excess of the facts as we see them. But I can't really see now, 40 years ago I found that helpful, but now I can't see any point in it. So what is the point of psychoanalyzing characters who are not alive? You, come um I, 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 I don't think there is. Um, uh, I, I, I agree. Um, but they are not alive. Uh, they're representations. Um, what psychoanalytic interpreters, I think, as well as literary ones, are, are trying to do is, is, is to think about why why a, a human situation is, is represented in certain ways, um, what what that mode of representation can can say about our own situation and how we relate it to others. I don't know if that helps, but that, that's how I would think of it.
1: I've just written about siblings in Hamlet, and if we can interpret it entirely in terms of the murder of a brother by a brother uh, as, as well as the Oedipal thing. What I think, just adding to what Tim was saying, I think what the reason for giving an Oedipal interpretation there was that people are always trying to explain why does Hamlet prevaricate all the time? Why is he always delaying? Why can't he get on with revenge? He's got perfectly good reason for revenging his father's murder when he knows it's a murder. Why can't he do it? And the, uh, the answer for the sort of Troy Jones thing was, because of his relationship to his mother, because he's absolutely obsessed with his mother. And that's why the, and it, that's the sort of, it, it's a question that a lot of literary critics address and they're here with an, another explanation, if it were, in terms of the incredible uh, closeness of his feelings for his, for his mother. So I think that was, it's a different, it's a different question. Don't tell you anything about Hamlet so much it tells you something about how he's handling a particular predicament. I think that's more the task but I, I'm not terribly that, that's like Tim I wouldn't be terribly interested in that sort of I don't believe in psychoanalyzing literature I think literature can tell us something that's useful to psychoanalysis that, that helps us to construct an understanding of unconscious processes because it is dealing with those and presenting them as unconscious motivations Hamlet doesn't know what why he is a peasant slave or what a broken peasant slave am I why is he? He keeps asking himself. He doesn't, and he thinks, well, maybe, you know, I'm frightened of death, and what's to be or not to be? What are those questions? He's always questioning himself, and I think that sort of questioning is because he doesn't consciously know, and that sort of questioning can help us think about questioning when we don't know something.
0: Please. I noticed that in 18th century literature there's definitely more talk of like pleasing melancholy and sort of like the last thing you guys were talking about, how they like don't see like negative emotions as bad, if that makes sense, sort of carabouts. like what do you think the mechanism of that change into like only pursuing pleasure and like avoiding all negative like emotions? What is that mechanism? <laughs>
1: I think that there is a sort of, um, a type of psychology that that think positive thinking is really going to change your life. And I think I'm saying I don't think positive thinking is going to change your life. It can help therapeutically at a certain point of real depths of depression. I would try anything basically because (coughs) really bad depression is really bad. Um, So I think I'm, I'm not against lots of different ways of trying different things. But from where I come from, at a certain point, it's actually going into the depression, because in that depression, you will find something that that, that that sparks something that possibly can help you out through it. I mean, we were talking, and we didn't get to it about instances of of getting into psychic pain in order, in a sense, to get out of it. That you might spend a lot of your time. Actually, avoiding psychic pain, but you need to go through that psychic pain to find out that actually there was something strong and, and good, as well as that painful thing at the same time. So it's a, always about it's about the, the being bad and good at the same time. Does, does that help? Yeah. Just like, what like do you think is the historical shift from that, into, or is that just psychological? I think it. I think it depends. A human culture, as far as we know, has always had depression. They call it under different names. Obviously, people speak different languages and things, and there are different historical epochs. But we don't know of any culture, that have, any society, that has not had evidence of depression.
0: I mean, I think um, <coughs> you mentioned melancholia and, the, and the, the, the rise of an interest in melancholia, which is characteristic of the Romantic period in, in, in Europe, isn't it? Um, And I think what what, what arises out of of, uh, moments like that, and textual moments like that, is that for those people at that time, melancholy is actually a a more creative avenue to pursue. Um, Which which gives, the the other side of that coin, uh, is that positive thinking, or pleasure, the pursuit of an uncomplicated notion of pleasure, doesn't tell us anything. Doesn't tell us anything we don't already know. you know, being positive, uh, it's, it's only a short step from there to saying, um, doing what you're told, you know, stopping so negative, you know, grow up. Um, so the positive thinking is, I mean, anything can be turned towards determinism. Positive thinking also. Melancholic can be turned to determinism as well in terms of, you know, becoming depressive or fixated on pain. But nonetheless, as you were saying, if you can explore pain, you can ex- also explore the, the, the relation, uh, uh, the, uh, the potential creativity in uh, individual human relations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just, you'll find that people find that in the fact that they've survived there's something really positive, that survival itself is, is a positive experience, you've been so near to something that's too awful and surviving begins to let you grow. When you recognise, oh, wait a minute, I've survived, also can make you feel very guilty if other people didn't survive. The, the, guilt, the survival of guilt and things. But it, it's a point of movement. Okay. Uh, sorry. I was really interested by what you said about mm. slow things down. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about kind of why that kind of temporal shift is important both in of the artistic relation and also in psychoanalysis and, and how it can kind of come to feel very difficult to slow things down and kind of be present in the face of your own
0: or something else's pain? I, I think um, it, it's important not to overgeneralize uh, and I very much felt I was responding to an, an invitation uh, by Giacometti and the artists and the writers that I eventually ended up grouping around him. Um, there was something uh, connecting all those things, which is, which is the, 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 the sort of or Garden belief that the, the, the visual is something immediate, that we know what that we can, you know, we can see something very immediately and that we know what we see. Um, was I, in, because of what I felt I was asked, being asked to do by Giacometti, you know, I came to the conclusion that, you know, we do not know what we see. Uh, we, we see what we see, but not what we do not. We, we do not see what we do not see. I know it's a kind of very, very kind of simple nomic-like uh, expression. But you know, we you, you see what we see, and not what we do not. And in, and in order to, 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 to negotiate um, that, and to negotiate the fact that I still might be able to imagine what I what I, what I can't see, uh, a very set of formal, really formal steps in art and in visual arts, you know, can be addressed to viewers. You know, if, if, if you walk around, if you think from about distance, if you think whether somebody is small in the distance, they are actually small, or is that your own point of view? If you think about all these things and put them together, that involves, that involves a slow process. It involves uh, constructing a relationship with an artwork as you go along. And by analogy, the, the, you know, the, the ideal is you would then... Uh, you would then become imbued with something like respect for, for, for others, as opposed to appropriateness. Any other thoughts? We're running out of time. Can, can just
1: all artists and researchers, I don't know what you saying. Tim said it. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for the missing piece. Is that...? just one artist, is that or is that all artists? Well he said that they're all hysterics, did I, <laughs> I said what? No? They're all hysterics, aren't they? So no, 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 I said, I, no, no, I didn't say they're all hysterics, right. <laughs> I, I said I said one well, can use, one well, can use that that there's a there's a creativity within hysteria too, oh, right, yeah. that can be used. I say that fine. But back to this, sort of, I think you said, you yeah, well, it was,
0: it was, it's, it's something that Louise Bourgeois said herself. Annals, yeah. Right, as a yeah.
1: soul, so your, your table
0: well, I mean, I th- um, it's it, intuitively that sounds right to me. Uh, the problem is obviously with pronouncements like that. Is it, you, know, you can say that about about anything or anybody or any activity whatsoever. Yes, everything is doing is looking
1: for the missing.
0: Looking, looking for the missing piece. And I, I think where that a- acquires meaning uh, is engaging with with the, the particular invitations that artists give to their viewers and try, trying to work out what they might be, you know, trying to actually, I mean, it's, that, that is a 3D piece, you know, it's, 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 it's not a photograph, it is absolutely not a photograph, you know, you have to somehow work out a relationship with it, that, that's what I mean.
1: I, I think, going back to my first study, that we're short on animal instincts and knowing how to get what we want because we're much more dependent I think what we have is a drive to know, that we are actually extremely curious, interested people. It can be knocked out of us, but basically as a, as a race, as a group, as a species, we are uh, uh, we have, we're driven to know something, and I think what you may be referring to in being a researcher is a sort of drive to know something, yeah. which can then actually also affect the audience. so you you know what is dacometti drive, driven to, to say? Here, given mm-hmm. to show you what you can't see, and you have to then be driven to know. Well, wait a minute. If I can't see, <laughs> what is it, and why can't I see? Mm-hmm. And what does that say? Tell us about seeing. We go on with the question. So can go on, and again back to the time. If you've got, if you give yourself time. Questions are endless in a sense, and they take you in very interesting directions. And you may, then that takes time. So I think research and time, slow time. Research is slow time. Mm-hmm.
0: I think we are going to have to stop there. Um, Thank you all very much for coming, and thank you, Juliette, for for this conversation. Thank you so much. much.